Hello, friends and enemies. Welcome to the Old Movie Lady podcast. I'm your host, the titular Old Movie Lady, but you can also call me Marg. This is the 15th episode of my series, The Wampus Frolic. And so far, I've covered the Western Association of Motion Picture Advertisers' Baby Stars lists from 1922 to 1926. I can't close the book on 1926, however, until I have covered one of the most notable events of that year concerning a man who was an ever-present figure of 1920s Hollywood. Today's two-reeler, in which I discuss the life, public persona, and death of Rudolph Valentino. In 1926, Rudolph Valentino was one of the most famous movie stars in the world. By some polls taken the year before, he was the biggest movie star. Even after some missteps, some personal and professional disappointments, some time away from the screen, some embarrassing rumors about his manliness, and some vocal haters, Valentino's popularity remained high. The passions he ignited in his fans were still going strong. I can only imagine how terrifying his fans would be if social media were around in the 1920s. You think today's fandoms are dedicated? Ha! Amateur hour compared to how much Rudy's audiences loved the guy. If they had had TikTok, forget about it. Take this poem published in Photoplay's January 1925 edition, After Rudolph Valentino Dared to Grow a Goatee. A heartbreaking offense because it covered up his beautiful face. It's called, What? with three exclamation points. Valentino? three question marks. I opened once a paper and I tell you what was in. It was Rudolph Valentino with a beard upon his chin. My heart stopped off from beating and I fainted dead away. And I never want to come to life until the judgment day. If I had seen dear Rudolph with a wart upon his nose, I wouldn't been a bit surprised, for that's where a big wart grows. But as an aid to beauty, they make of him a freak. He'd better see a barber and be the same old chic. For Pete's sake, what could make him leave them, grow so wild and free? If that's the style on deserts, or perhaps in gay Paris, I hope he goes back over and he stays across the sea. We want our Valentino just as he used to be. The Lord tore up the pattern and threw away the plan, so we know there could never be just such another man. Why he went and got himself bewhiskered, I can't tell, but if he doesn't shave them off, we'll all raise bleep. To be fair to poet Margaret Caroline Wells, Rudy did look terrible in that Van Dyke. And as humorous as the poem is, it is also a wonderful example of the parasocial relationship. Valentino's army of admirers felt a sense of ownership and entitlement over his image. They threatened that they'd rather not see him at all than to see him looking bad, but in truth, he just needs to conform with their expectations of him or they freak the fuck out. Also, not to beleaguer the poem, except it really delighted me to no end, but that couplet, The Lord tore up the pattern and threw away the plan, so we know that there could never be just such another man. 
it sums up the phenomenon of Rudolf Valentino quite well. There had been no one quite like him on screen before, and though he was often imitated, no one else came even close in the hearts of filmgoers. Born in Italy on May 6, 1895, as Rodolfo Pietro Filiberto Raffaello Guglielmelli de Valentina Dangtongela, he was a pretty child doted on by his mother. His father, with whom he wasn't particularly close, died when he was 11. He was 18 years old with little English or even much of a plan when he immigrated to the United States in December 1913. He had a little bit of money, but he blew through it almost immediately. In New York, Rudy slept in Central Park and worked doing odd jobs, bussing tables, and the like. Eventually, as he knew the tango and was quite good-looking, he got a job as a taxi dancer. Taxi dancers are just like that song by Tina Turner, Private Dancers, Dancers for Money in Any Old Music Will Do. To be slightly more specific, taxi dancers would be available to dance with for a price for the length of a song. It was not at all unusual for taxi dancers to dip a toe into escorting work and sex work. Though, to listen to the morality critics of the time, that was all they did. Lounge lizards, tango pirates, gigolos. There were all kinds of dismissive nicknames that painted the dancers as dangerous, seductive men who allowed women to <gasps> pay for everything. Not that Rudy was above such things. After getting a step up from taxi dancing into dancing on stage at cabarets and nightclubs and theaters with partner Joan Sawyer, he also became a well-known companion to some very rich ladies, which is how he met socialite Blanca de Sol. Though the exact nature of their relationship is unknown, he agreed to testify on her behalf in her divorce proceedings, confirming an affair that her husband, was having with his dance partner, Joan. This earned swift retaliation from the husband, who apparently used his political connections to get Rudy arrested on vice charges. Being arrested by the vice squad, even for trumped-up reasons that never resulted in a trial, was still enough to get Rudy's name in the paper. Suddenly, his name, or the name Rodolfo Guglielmi, was mud in New York. It didn't take long for him to go by different variations of his name, eventually landing on Rudolf Valentino. Things were worrisome for Rudy. No one really trusted him to be their dance partner anymore. What do you have? And the fancy rich ladies may have wanted to pay for an escort, but not one who is now infamous, you know? He had done some extra work in New York productions, but generally he was out of work. It all got worse when Blanca shot and killed her ex-husband in the summer of 1917. Not wanting to be involved in another high-profile trial, Rudy joined a traveling operetta company and skipped town. Eventually, he made it to Hollywood, and a string of bit roles followed. Over his first few years on the West Coast, he predominantly played characters entirely befitting his reputation as a lounge lizard slash gigolo a reputation which had followed him from New York despite his best efforts. If not slick, immoral seducers, he played thugs and heavies. This was because of his look. 
dark hair, olive skin, dark eyes. He was European, not just European, but Italian, which to film producers, who dealt heavily in stereotypes and bigotry, equaled low-class, rough, and menacing. D.W. Griffith reportedly quipped, He's too foreign-looking. The girls would never like him. I mean, you have to laugh to be so sure and yet so wrong. The girls certainly did like him, as evidenced by his friendships with Dorothy Gish, Carmel Myers, and Mae Murray, who all pulled strings to get him small roles in their movies. Still, starring roles seemed out of the question, until it came time to make The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse in 1920. June Mathis was an accomplished writer and had recently become the head of the script department at Metro. She was the first woman to have reached the executive level there and a pioneering writer-producer. June had seen Rudy in a small role in the 1919 film Eyes of Youth and immediately wanted him for her next film. In Eyes of Youth, he appeared as a sort of honey trapper who tricks a woman into being alone in a room with him so that she will get intentionally caught there by her husband. He goes so far as to menace the lady and rip her dress nearly all the way off so that it looks like they're in a compromising position. And it's a decidedly not heroic role. But June could see something very appealing about this dangerous fellow. In a bit of a twist of fate, Rudy had fallen in love with the novel The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, and when he heard that Metro was going to do the adaptation, he went to the studio to see if he could get himself a small role. There he learned that ever since seeing him in Eyes of Youth, June had been trying to connect with him. They finally met, and much to Rudy's surprise, June offered him the lead role. Other Metro executives balked at the idea of putting an unknown whose primary experience had been playing heavies in the lead role as Julio, but June persisted. She and Rudy soon developed a close bond. Though she was only eight years older than him, she went into full mama bear mode, mentoring and protecting him. His own mother had passed away unexpectedly back in Italy in 1918, and I think he was searching for a kind of tenderness. He took to calling June Little Mother, and really, they were the most devoted friends. She has been long credited with his discovery, and it's another check in the column of listen to women if you're keeping track. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse was released in March 1921. It was a huge hit, one of the highest grossing films of the year, and one of the most successful silent films of all time. And it made Rudolph Valentino seemingly out of nowhere, a gigantic star. Audiences demanded to know anything and everything about Valentino, and the fan magazines responded with a slew of profiles. I recall the first time I saw Valentino, he was dancing in a cafe, dancing in stealthy glide. The floor was sleek and glossy, his hair was sleek and glossier, his dance was slithered and glossed, he impressed me as being handsome, Sleek, Pitcher Play sleekly wrote in their August issue. He observed all the forms of gallantry known to the Continental Cavalier. Women were enamored of his manner, his beauty, his grace, his low murmuring Latin tones. Little note, 
They were using Latin here as an umbrella term, as Italian and other Romance languages originated in the Latin language, so people from Southern Europe were referred to as Latin. It's not meant in reference to those from Latin America, as I believe most of us here in the Western Hemisphere, anyway, would use the term today. Rudy made a few more decidedly underwhelming films with MGM that year. They weren't treating him like or paying him like the newly formed star that he was. So he abruptly jumped ship to Famous Players and ended the year of 1921 with The Chic, another major hit which cemented his star status and his place as the ultimate sex symbol. Far better scholars than I have analyzed The Chic for its subtext and very problematic presentation of Middle Eastern people, but I'll just flag that as a technicality, Famous Players didn't cast Rudy against race here, as the titular Sheik is revealed to be actually European. Of course, this was so that Rudy's character could skirt censors and get the white woman in the end, so it's still perpetuating more racist nonsense, but I do think it is noteworthy. Suave, enigmatic, with a glistening curtsy, alien and disarming, Rudolph Valentino greets, converses with, and departs the interviewer, writes a motion picture magazine piece called The Perfect Lover. First of all, dismiss the idea of the sleek and the insidious. There is nothing repellent, nothing unmasculine about Valentino, merely a heavy exoticism, compelling, fascinating, perhaps a little disturbing. The magazine was trying to get to the bottom of his appeal and skirting around the issue a bit. Women were enamored with his beauty and his grace, and excited by his general foreignness, but they were also enamored with, how shall I put this, with the fact that, on screen at least, he looked and he acted like he could really do a number on you, if you catch my drift. Most of his contemporaries, like Douglas Fairbanks, like Wallace Reed, were good boys, all-American hero types who simply didn't look like they knew their way around a vulva. But not Rudy. The American man, they quoted him in the Perfect Lover piece, makes the mistake of supposing that, for a woman, Jewels and fine silks are more to be preferred than caresses. They also have him comparing ladies to violins eager to be played. It feels a little pickup artisty today, but to the women in the audience at the time, this felt pretty revolutionary. Nobody else, especially nobody that good-looking and sophisticated and famous, was talking about their pleasure. In 1922, fans continued to clamor for Rudy, with Photoplay reporting in June, The Valentino fed seems to continue without abatement. The girls at Hollywood High School, for example, frankly admit that they scour the school for boys bearing a faint resemblance to their hero, and that the Spanish and Italian boys, the Valentino boys as they call them, are the only ones who are universally popular with the fair sex this year. 
And Rudy continued on this hot streak, which included one of the top-grossing films of the year, Blood and Sand. The fan mail was pouring in, as were angry letters when, for example, Motion Picture Magazine failed to include any pictures of him for just one issue. Our mailbags overflowed! There came letters by the hundred, letters of protest, of regret, of pleas, and of threats. Meanwhile, some people, lots of dudes, were up in arms, loudly declaring how much they couldn't stand him at all. In Photoplay, they published this diatribe called A Song of Hate. I hate Valentino. All men hate Valentino. I hate his classic nose. I hate his Roman face. I hate his smile. I hate his glistening teeth. I hate his patent leather hair. I hate his Fengali glare. I hate him because he dances too well. I hate him because he's a slicker. I hate him because he's the great lover of the screen. I hate him because he's an embezzler of hearts. I hate him because he's too apt in the art of osculation. I hate him because he's a leading man for Gloria Swanson. I hate him because he's too good-looking. Ever since he came galloping in with the four horsemen, he has been the cause of more home-cooked battle royales than they can print in the papers. The women are all dizzy over him. The men have formed a secret order, of which I am running for president and chief executioner, you may notice, to loathe, hate, and despise him for obvious reasons. What, me jealous? Oh no, I just hate him. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. But as passionate as his fans were, that didn't mean that everything was all smooth sailing for Rudy himself. The year before, he had fallen deeply in love with Natasha Rambova. Birth name, Winifred Shaughnessy, then Winifred Hudnut, after her mother remarried. She was a costume designer who was extremely artsy-fartsy. The general consensus is that Rudy worshipped her. You can see why. She was very beautiful. A hot Morticia Adams type and she was creative, charismatic, and independent. Back in 1919, Rudy had impulsively married Jean Acker, who he somehow missed was a lesbian. They broke up before the wedding night was over, but technically the divorce was not completely finalized by May 1922, when he and Natasha eloped in Mexico. He was promptly arrested for bigamy. Did this hurt his reputation? Not really. It just further proved how alive with passion he was. Things got all the more intriguing and romantic when a judge ordered that the couple needed to stay away from each other until the divorce was fully settled. During this court-ordered separation, production began on the young Raja. Rudy played the lead, a young prince of Indian descent adopted by American parents. The sheik aside, he was often cast as other races. And Natasha did the costumes, some of which were decidedly skimpy. Now, not all of Rudy's films in the last two years had been hits, but most of them had supported his image as the greatest screen lover, a romantic lead with just enough edge, just enough mystery, and just enough spice. But his role as the young Raja was bland, scantily clad perhaps, but soft. Unhappy about being separated from Natasha. Unhappy that famous players hadn't paid his bail when he was arrested for bigamy, even though they had already paid for his divorce. 
unhappy about the whole production, Rudy slept through the film. And when the movie was a flop, he placed the blame squarely on the studio and went on strike. He was off screen until 1924. It's a testament, again, to the devotion of his fan base that Rudy's career and reputation survived this strike at all. He did lots to keep himself in the public eye, including releasing a book of poetry, telling his life story in photoplay, and with a sponsorship deal with Mineral Lava Skincare. After he and Natasha married non-bigamously, they went on a dancing tour sponsored by Mineral Lava. It was extremely popular. His comeback, which saw an end to his strike, was 1924's Monsieur Beaucaire. Rudolph Valentino is suggestive of the thinker in this pose. Photoplay captioned a photo of him looking just like that. Perhaps he is wondering how it will seem to wear a wig and satin knee panties in the appealing title role of his next picture. Well, a wig and satin knee panties isn't exactly the way to win over the men in the audience, at least publicly. They, the men, were already clutching their pearls over the fact that the ladies in their lives thought that this guy was much hotter than they were. Throughout his career, there had been criticisms that the image presented by Rudy was insufficiently manly. Less in his actual films, I would argue, though it was there too, more in his public persona. He could dance. He was fashion-forward. He used colognes and hair products. He lived luxuriously in a mansion he dubbed the Falcon Lair. He deferred to his powerhouse wife in all things, and wore what was called a silver slave bracelet that she gave him. Never mind, of course, that there are a million different ways to be a man and that gender is a social construct. And never mind that the audiences who were attracted to Rudy were attracted to him because of all of this, not in spite of it. Really, he got so much negativity specifically because women in particular were so into him. And women's sexuality terrifies the patriarchy. That said, Monsieur Beaucaire was not a major box office attraction. In fact, despite his enduring popularity with fans, British ones, for example, named him their top star in the April 1925 issue of Picture and the Picture Goer, his comeback films were underwhelming. That included, sort of, his unfinished vanity project, The Hooded Falcon. But later in 1925, Rudy was slowly but surely getting back on top, much to the delight of his devotees, who picture play called perhaps the most sensationally demonstrative following of any stage or screen star in America. He'd signed with United Artist, who in a shrewd move, as her artistic visions had proved less than successful, contractually barred Natasha from working on any of her husband's projects. That pissed her off, and the couple divorced. His first film with United Artists was The Eagle. By quite a measure, it was Rudy's most successful film in years. He even won over the men in the audience for once, and reportedly at least half of his fan letters after the film came out were from dudes. His next picture, The Son of the Sheik, was designed to be a true, undeniable return to form. 
Moody hadn't particularly wanted to revisit that type of character as it was all but guaranteeing typecasting, but his return to Hollywood was still on shaky ground. He needed the money, and he knew that his army of fans were desperate for the Rudolph Valentino of old. Before filming began in February 1926, Rudy had taken off to Europe to celebrate the Eagle and was trying to cope with his divorce. He partied hard, drinking heavily, and spending exorbitant amounts of money. Friends said that he talked about Natasha constantly and barely slept. He did begin seeing Pola Negri, but even during the filming of The Son of the Sheik, colleagues heard him ranting brokenheartedly about his ex-wife. Emotionally, people said, he was unwell. People also noticed that he was quite clearly unwell physically. His best friend June Mathis, banished from the scene for a while during his relationship with Natasha, begged him to see a doctor and have a rest. Rudy would do neither. The Son of the Sheik had its premiere on July 8, 1926. Everyone was very excited. Buzz was buzzing. Then, while on an engagement tour to promote the film, Rudy read a piece in the Chicago Tribune decrying the decline in masculinity in the American male and blaming Rudolph Valentino for it. The anonymous writer had visited a men's room and was horrified to discover pink face powder being provided to patrons. A powder vending machine? In a men's room? Homo Americanus! Why didn't someone quietly drown Rudolph Guglielmo alias Valentino years ago? He really did spell it G-U-G-L-I-E-L-M-O, which is incorrect. It's so ridiculous, but it really offended Rudy to be scapegoated in such a fashion. He challenged the writer to a boxing match to prove what a man he really was. It never happened, but he did do some ring practice with champion boxer Jack Dempsey and sports writer Buck O'Neill, who quipped, That boy has a punch like a mule's kick. The publicity surrounding the proposed fight and Rudy's eagerness to show off his skills helped boost the Son of the Sheik's early box office runs. He had good reason to be optimistic, but Rudy was still worried about his large amount of debt. Moreover, despite his continued overindulgences, he was frequently doubled over in pain with what he called indigestion. He point-blank refused to seek medical attention. In New York, to promote the film, after an evening of partying at the Ambassador Hotel, and in the early hours of the morning on Sunday, August 15th, Rudy fell violently ill. Too ill to ignore. Too ill to brush off as indigestion. He was rushed to the hospital. Surgery for appendicitis and gastric ulcers was performed. Reportedly, when he awoke from the operation, evidently still insulted by the newspaper piece, he asked his manager, Did I behave like a pink powder puff or like a man? Everyone had every reason to believe he would recover just fine. Rudy, brave in the face of death, read the headline in the New York graphic tabloid. Fans flocked to the hospital. His room was filled with flowers and gifts, Famous friends sent their well wishes, including, of course, Natasha, who was sure that this would reunite them, and Paula, who obsessively called the hospital switchboard for updates. 
but Rudy really was brave and cheerful, all things considered. He wondered when he'd get to go home already. A few days later, he developed peritonitis, an inflammation of the abdomen walls, and then declined even further, developing pleurisy in his lung, and then septus. Rudolph Valentino died on August 23, 1926. He was 31 years old. The next day, a crowd of 30,000 people stood outside of the funeral home where his body lay. It turned into a mob scene, and over 100 people were injured. A viewing was arranged in New York with an estimated 50 to 75,000 grieving fans coming to pay their respects. Two suicides and one attempted suicide were confirmed as being a direct result of his death. The public response was overwhelming. Hollywood's response was too. Polonegri attempted to, well, take over proceedings and turn them into the Pola show. She claimed to have been Rudy's fiance and sent floral arrangement that said P-O-L-A to the New York Memorial Service. Her offering was turned away, at which point she went into hysterics and destroyed the display. His remains were taken by train to California for a second funeral where 500 invited guests could come inside. Thousands lined the streets. Rudy's finances were in shambles, and his close friend June Mathis offered up her already paid-for crypt as a temporary resting place. June passed away from a heart attack less than a year later, and rather than move anyone, the two friends rest side by side in what is now the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. The Son of the Sheik opened nationwide shortly after. It was a colossal hit. Many critics praised it as the finest film of Valentino's career. Theaters across the world rushed to get prints of other Valentino films, the fan magazines filled with effusive tributes. His first wife, for all of a day, Jean Acker tacked Valentino onto her last name and put out a modeling song in his honor. Polinegri continued to tell anyone who would listen that she was the love of his life. And Natasha Rambova released two books about him, including one where she recounts conversations she and Rudy had from beyond the grave. In the wake of his death, the legend of Rudolf Valentino continued on. Hollywood had experienced loss before. Wallace Reed, for example, was a huge star who also died suddenly and young. But as I discussed in my last two-reeler episode, his widow was able to take control of the narrative. But Rudy's story was always one with an air of mystery and intrigue. And he wasn't just popular, he was obsessed over. Magazines continued to mention him frequently, publishing photos and profiles years, years after his passing, because there was a constant fan demand. And to many of those fans, his death meant that they could keep his perfect lover image with them, frozen in time. Thousands of visitors have sought out his final resting place, including the infamous Woman in Black, who has actually been several women over the years, a weeping mourner in widow's wear who visits the mausoleum every year on the anniversary of his death. It's all very gothic and morbid, but romantic in its way. Thoughts on Death, a letter published in Picture Play's March 1927 issue by Dorothea E. Rehenkamp, reads... 
what a strange spirit the public shows to one it grants greater fame after death to another mere oblivion regardless of merit to the living it often turns its backs then when the object of its sneers is dead it sends flowers valentino had thorns with his roses in life but in death came the lilies which have no thorns his death is still like a ghastly nightmare out of which we want to awaken but cannot with the pens of amateur poets some try to praise him and commemorate him i as one of those praise and commemorate yet find in his death a singular happiness it is that now he belongs to the ages to rudolph valentino better the hero dead than fallen better the flower pressed than broken better the pitcher lost than faded better the lover free than mated better the tender dream than grim reality better the shrined soul than mere mortality better the idol buried than forsaken better the vision vanished than mistaken better the cup relinquished before the dregs we taste better a memory cherished before the affections waste Thank you for listening to this slightly shorter, but hey, still substantial episode of the Old Movie Lady podcast. If you've been enjoying this series so far, drop me a line at theoldmovielady at gmail.com. Write a review, share your thoughts online, tell your best friends and your greatest enemies. I've been your host, Marg, the Old Movie Lady, an unholy mess of a girl. Thank you.